And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the letter to 1 Timothy, letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where in just a moment we'll read verses 11 through 15. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's found on page 1178 of your pew Bible if you're using that. I want to begin this morning by reminding you of what we've been learning. From the start, we've been noting that the Bible clearly teaches the essential equality of men and women. Both men and women are made in the image of God. Not only are we both image bearers from the beginning, but we also now share in the title spirit bearer. Redeemed men and women receive the Holy Spirit as promised by Jesus. We see this at Pentecost and in the apostolic church as the Spirit empowered women and men to prophesy and speak in tongues. But to really appreciate the essential equality, we must dig one layer deeper. We must go back to one source, and that source is Christ. Every believer, male or female, is already in Christ. We are already together, male and female, seated with him in heaven. In him we have already received every blessing. Spiritually, we are all considered, spiritually, we are all considered firstborn sons, that is, as heirs of heaven and of glory. So Paul can tell the Galatians that in Christ Jesus, spiritually in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus and the offspring of Abraham. In light of such emphatic teaching, in light of our shared union with Christ, any demeaning view of Christian sisters and their gifts flirts with blasphemy. Mature Christians, mature churches, and mature husbands will honor deeply their sisters in Christ, seeking to work, as Paul said, quote, side by side with them in the gospel, end quote. Such churches, pastors, and husbands will be unthreatened by female giftedness, but rather they will rejoice and honor sister giftedness as a manifestation of the gifts given by Christ himself, and they'll seek to cultivate such honorable gifts in their co-heirs. These spiritual realities are essential equality in Christ. These partake of what we might call the already they are true right now. Already we are one in Christ. Already we are seated with Christ in heaven, even right now. We've been calling this already pillar one, the essential equality of women, men and women, even now and especially in eternity. But if you know the scriptures, you know that we must, if we're going to be faithful, add to that already we must add a not yet. So, for example, although already seated with Christ in heaven, we are still in the body, struggling with sin. The Apostle John captures this so beautifully 
this reality of our lives when he says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Feel for a moment that tension, that contrast that really fills and undergirds the entire theology of the New Testament. Now we are the children of God. Now we are the heirs. And yet what we will, we will be has not been fully yet manifested. And so, brothers and sisters, though we are essentially equal in Christ, we are still in the body and still part of this creation. God's mission for this world is not over. As such, we are called to roles. If pillar one is essentially equal, pillar two then, as we've been seeing, is role distinct. Role distinct. Children, even believing children who are seated with Christ, must still, Paul says, honor their mother and their father. Timothy is told later in this letter that younger men and women are to respect older men and women. Why? Why? What does age matter if both people are already seated with Christ? Answer, we are still in the body, and God's mission to the world continues. For the sake of that mission, Wives are to submit to their husbands. The same Paul, who so emphatically states our essential equality, just as emphatically calls us to accept the roles God has given us in this life and submit ourselves to each other and ultimately to Christ. Those today who try to overthrow the headship of husbands, for example, are falling into the trap. They're falling into the trap of utopianism. They're trying to live as if everything were already, already. Paul and Peter were deeply concerned about this. Some false teachers in the church were even suggesting that marriages be dissolved. If you know your history, if you know the history of all the great cults in America, you know that utopianism is a hallmark of cults. One of the first things a cult leader does, right, they always dissolve the marriages in the group. Marriage, they say, is an earthly institution. We're heading toward a different and glorious future, so let's just live that way now. That's utopianism. The result is, as you probably know, disaster and immorality. Instead, the apostles command us to live firmly in the already, already seated with Christ, and the not yet. We still live in marriages and families. And you see, that's what it means to live between our two pillars. And that is what we are studying together in 1 Timothy 2. We are trying to live together as men and women who, though equal in Christ and looking into an eternity of equality, yet we are still in the body and still on mission together. Today, let's receive God's word as it uncovers God's ancient purposes in our different roles as men and women. So please stand and we'll read our text, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come to this uh, portion of your word and acknowledge that it is your word and that it is not as confusing as we make it to be. As Elder Castillo has said, the confusion is with us. And so we pray, take away our confusion, make plain and clear your word to us and give us humble hearts to receive it. Use this teaching, Father, for the building up of this congregation and for all those who will hear it and draw us ever nearer to our Savior through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last time, uh, last week, you might remember, we considered verses 11 and 12, uh, not just in the context of 1 Timothy, but I hope in the context really of the whole New Testament. The picture that emerged from that study, I hope, was clear to you. Paul wants women in the church to learn and to have a safe environment to do that in. In fact, part of the purpose of this letter is to address abusive male leaders in the Ephesian church and to call Timothy to put an end to their practices. Of course, this would have been, this would have been the perfect time for Paul to call then for women to become pastors and elders in the face of poor and abusive male leadership in the church. And who could blame him? The men were using prayer, verse 8, as a time for their anger and their competitiveness. Meanwhile, other leaders were going into the homes of vulnerable women to exploit them. We'll read about that later. The situation was ripe for change, for the ordination of women to protect women. And many today are pushing for this, wrongly believing that Paul could not or did not foresee our struggles today. But instead, and we cannot ignore this, Paul doubles down, as it were. And so he insists that women are to learn in quiet and all submissiveness. As we noted last time, this doesn't mean silence. That's not the word here. Women can and must at times speak up and speak often. And it certainly doesn't mean that all women in the church are to submit to all the men in the church. Rather, Paul has in mind a woman's own husband and the elders of the church. We noted that this pattern fits perfectly with 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through chapter 14 and numerous other passages and the universal teaching of the church for 2,000 years. Now, all this may sound rather obvious to most of you. The women of our church are not trying to get ordained, and I don't know any member here who believes that that is biblical. But here's the thing. More and more people who identify as evangelical are ordaining women to the office of elder and deacon and pastor. And more and more, evangelical men and women are hearing snippets of bad teaching and going with a new teaching that feels so right, so natural. But you may ask yourself today, how do they do it? How do they get past a passage like this? Here's how. Since the American sexual revolution in the 1960s, modern Western scholars have taught that what Paul says here is limited to the Ephesian church. It is purely local. 
They point out that Ephesus was home to a massive temple to Diana and that the society may have had a strong feminist bent. Paul then, in this new secular view, is simply trying to keep the women in this church from dominating. He never intended us to take this so literally, so universally. As is so often the case, these studies have been hotly debated and I would say even refuted. There is no clear or compelling evidence that Ephesus was ever a matriarchal society, a society in which women really were in control. But even if that is so, even if that was so, can that piece of background information really explain away all that Paul says here? Why does Paul also teach women and wives to submit to their own husbands in places like Colossians 3? More troubling than all this, are we really to believe that godly women over the past 2,000 years have largely been deluded? That only now, only now, with academic Western scholarship, have we really come to understand the truth? In fact, the scholarship is nowhere certain. But far more important than any background information we might have, brothers and sisters, is what the text of Scripture says, what it actually says. Please understand, Christians, that the hallmark of false teaching today, one of the hallmarks of false teaching today is to use questionable, debatable bits of background to silence the actual argument the Spirit of God is speaking through the apostles. Whether or not Ephesus was matriarchal, Paul makes an argument here, and believers are bound to follow the argument and embrace it as it is the very word of God. Now, within the text itself, there are, I believe, many ways to destroy this false new argument. For example, this very section of scripture begins with Paul stating the opposite. This is not just local advice. Verse 8 begins, the beginning of this section, I desire then that in every place. We might also ask why it is that only verses 11 through 15 are not for today, and when everything else around it, everyone agrees, is universal. Is anyone honestly saying that the qualifications for elders that we read in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, was just for Ephesus or just for then? No, it's, everyone says it's universal. It's just 11 through 15, we're told, happens to not be universal. As D.A. Carson and the late Tim Keller pointed out recently, those who try to restrict 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, might as well restrict everything else Paul ever said. After all, everything Paul wrote was written into a local situation. The good news, though, is that our text this morning answers these questions if we'll listen to it. After prohibiting women from teaching and ruling authority in the church, Paul grounds, he grounds his teaching not in the Ephesian situation, or in Roman feminist culture known as the new woman, or in the rampant chauvinism of his day, but rather Paul roots his teaching 
in the scriptures in creation. Let's look together then. Let's look together now, especially at verses 13 and 14 and 15, and notice how Paul grounds his teaching, his prohibition, in the story of creation, fall, and redemption. So first of all, in verse 13, see how Paul's perspective is rooted in creation. He writes, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. When you go back and read the creation story, you should begin to observe that Adam and Eve were created in a particular order and in a very different way. God first formed Adam from the dust of the ground. God then charged him with the ultimate responsibility for the created order and gave him the duty of naming the animals. This means Adam came directly from God. God is Adam's only ancestor. This is confirmed for us in the genealogy that we receive in Luke chapter 3. There Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back through people's fathers to Adam, always naming someone's father. But then he writes this, Luke writes this in Luke 3, Adam, son of God. Adam has no father or mother, but comes directly from God who acts in the genealogy as his dad, as his father. Of course, God is Adam's creator. He didn't birth Adam by a woman, but the analogy, the concept of a firstborn son is used by scripture to designate Adam. Adam is a firstborn son, and he is therefore appointed to rule over the creation, name the animals, and represent his heavenly father on the earth. In just about every uh, other place in our world, except in the Western world, I guess, uh, the firstborn son picture. When someone says firstborn son, that's clear to most people in the world. Even today in England, the next English king, thankfully, will be William, not Harry, because William is the firstborn son. In the Bible, this is important. Firstborn sons would normally inherit the lion's share of the family's wealth and are responsible for the family's future. Calling someone the firstborn meant that he carried the image, character, and future of the family. So, for example, God calls Israel his firstborn son in the Old Testament. Israel is not literally the offspring of God by a woman, of course, but God is using the terminology of firstborn son to mean my chief heir, my image bearer. In Colossians 1, Paul rightly transfers all that meaning to Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. Paul is fully aware of the Adam language that he is using there in Colossians 1. Paul is not, he is not, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will falsely tell you, he is not saying Jesus was the first created being. They say that because they're ignorant of the scriptures. But that Jesus is the firstborn in the sense of the one having the rights of inheritance, the preeminence, and the rule that comes with being the firstborn and having the firstborn status. Paul then adds that Jesus is also the head of the church, and the firstborn from the grave. We, of course, will be raised bodily one day with Christ, 
but he went first, and his resurrection is firstborn. It is preeminent. So Adam, Adam's being made first and called first is significant to God's plan. This is why in Romans chapter 5 and in so many other places, Paul always blames Adam for our fall. He was the firstborn son. The scriptures never say or even hint that we fell in Eve. Rather, in every case, we fell in Adam. You see, as the firstborn and head, he represented us all. He represented the whole human family. Now, if this sounds unfair to you, if you're tempted to say, and I think we're all tempted to say at some point in our life, how can God blame me for something Adam did? Just pause and remember that this idea of headship is also the way God saves us. How is it that Jesus' perfect obedience is given to us? How is it that Jesus' inheritance, which technically belongs to him and he alone has a right to it, can be given to sinners like us? Well, because Jesus is the firstborn son. We are represented in him. He is our head. We are connected. And so in the end, this thing that seems so unfair and tragic was always God's intended way to give us eternity and to give us himself. It is this arrangement that makes it all possible. Well, back to Adam and creation. We're told in the scriptures that this firstborn Adam was not whole on his own. We're told that Adam had no helper suitable for him. Now, before you react, please remember that the word helper is a very honorable word in Scripture. God calls himself Israel's helper, same word, on many occasions. And the idea behind it is not that wives are a servant or hired help. The word is for one who comes alongside and often provides rescue, relief, and especially it's used in military situations. Eve, then, is critical to God's plan. She is a biblical helper. In fact, the plan, the whole plan, stalls without her. And not just the plan of creation, but as we'll see, even the plan of redemption hinges on Eve. But Eve does have a different destiny, a different body, and a different role, a different story. This can clearly be seen in the way God made Eve. If God wanted to say men and women are just the same, he would have simply followed the process he used for creating Adam. But he did not. Very dramatically, maybe you've never thought about this, but think about it. Very dramatically, God chose surgery. He put Adam under and removed part of his body. In this incredible act, God forever binds them together. Adam rightly says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Think about it. They would have had a bond. They would have a bond that we normally see today only in twins. And by the way, couples, this is still God's plan for us to be so close to be one at every level. The great mission of marriage is seeking that one flesh union. But there was also another reason God did this very dramatic surgery and reconstruction. 
God's very intentional surgery spoke to Adam's role as the elder, as the leader, as the firstborn. We know this because Paul explicitly teaches it in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes that man is, quote, the image of God and glory of God. God is his only ancestor, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, but woman for man. Now, Paul is not denying that women are ultimately made in the image of God. We've said that over and over. Genesis teaches that. Paul is simply pointing out that women's image passes through man, as it were. She was not first. She was built off of the existing model of humanity that God had created. She is not firstborn. So in the church where Eden is being rebuilt, where we are once again meeting with God and walking with God in our worship, can you see why Paul does not want wives ruling over their husbands and women exercising authority over men? It's not that he was a bigot or a chauvinist. This section has not one derogatory remark about women in it. It is all theology pure theology. If you're a sister hearing this and you feel discouraged by it, let me offer two vital additions to encourage you. First, sisters, remember that in the Bible, the firstborn is often not, in the end, the chosen one. Think of Jacob and Esau. Being firstborn does not mean more loved or more important. It is a calling, not a value statement on you. It is a calling, not a value statement. God hated the firstborn Esau and loved Jacob. Firstborn does not mean God loves men more than women. Second, let us never lose sight, sisters, never lose sight of our shared identity in Christ. As believers, we are united to him. We all spiritually receive his firstborn status. You receive the status of a firstborn son spiritually. In fact, in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says that when we come together, as we're doing right now, and we worship, we enter spiritually the great temple in heaven along with all other believers who've gone before us. And the author of Hebrews then calls that place, quote, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So all believers, male and female, have the status of a firstborn son. So Peter tells husbands, treat your wives with love as, quote, fellow heirs with you. The difference is roles in the story, not value or worth. So we were made differently we were given different roles, not as a punishment, but as a plan. A plan that began, by the way, began when there was no sin, no shame, and no abuse. Christians want that plan realized as much as possible in this life. We love the Father's plan. Second, though, notice, Paul grants his, grounds his teaching also in, not just in creation, verse 13, but now, verse 14, in the fall, in the fall. Adam and Eve were not only made differently, but they also fell into sin differently. Look at verse 14. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. For many centuries, believers have wondered, believers have wondered, maybe you've wondered, why Satan chose to tempt Eve instead of Adam. Some Christians have suggested that women are more likely to follow false teaching. Some have suggested that this is why God prohibits women from ruling office in the church. But this is never mentioned in the Bible. And in fact, looking back at history, men are far more likely to embrace and teach falsehood. Besides, Adam knew he was sinning. Doesn't that make him a far worse candidate for eldership in Christ's church? So let's get, let me get back to something I said earlier. In this argument, verses 13 through 15, Paul does not in any way root his teaching in what we might call psychological or biological or even in essential worth. Paul never says or even suggests that women are more prone to error or that women are bad leaders. Because very few women were allowed to lead in Paul's society, it would have been so easy for Paul to simply join the good old boy network and make that argument. But Paul does not do that. He stays theological. He stays rooted in scripture alone. But if women are not more likely to fall, why did Satan choose Eve? And why does Paul call attention to this? Well, I think the great theologian Gerhardus Voss gives an answer that relies upon the scriptures. In Genesis, Voss points out, God spoke his command, the command, don't eat that tree. He speaks his command to Adam alone. Eve knew the command, of course, from Adam though. But that's not the same thing as hearing it from God's own mouth. Voss suggests that Satan went after Eve because she was just a little more vulnerable. Her understanding of her situation and God's command was from what Adam had taught her. She should have known better, of course, but Satan persuaded her. She then reversed her role as helper and became a hurter. She persuaded Adam, who knew better, to give in. In other words, you see, part of Satan's strategy was to destroy and reverse the relationship in their marriage. God had made Adam the firstborn and given him the ultimate responsibility for God's mission to the world. He also gave Adam the word of God to direct his mission, making him the spiritual leader, not in any heavy-handed way, but quite naturally. But in the fall, Satan reversed the roles and fooled Eve into acting first. Satan was attacking, you see, the whole created order of God, and he's still attacking marriage fiercely. He hates marriage. I hope you know that. The whole thing is so loathsome to him. Imagine what it is for him to see two people, image bearers, walking in unity. It must give him flashbacks to the beauty of Eden, something he thought he already ruined. But in the church... Jesus is rebuilding those ruins. So we are meant to recapture God's design by God's grace. Men need to rise up and humbly protect and serve as Adam failed to do. And women should not rule over the men in the church. This only encourages the men to follow Adam's disastrous example. 
So we are equals in essentials and forever, but we also have different roles in this life and God's great history and plan for this world. These different roles are highlighted first in verse 13 in our creation, second in verse 14 in how we fell, the way we fell as men and women, and lastly now third in our redemption. Look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through a childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Men and women are saved in the exact same way. We're all saved by grace through faith alone. But Paul wants us to remember that even when we're talking about our story as men and women, there are differences in the way that redemption played out. After talking about women being born second and falling first, the women at Ephesus may have felt rather discouraged. Born second, fell first, that's not hard to, that's hard to accept. Hard to hear probably. But Paul gives this wonderful word of encouragement in verse 15, as if to say, remember, sisters, remember, though, how the story goes. The key to unlocking this verse is to read it slowly and to remember that the verse divisions aren't there. They don't exist in the original. Chapters and verse divisions, we added those, pre-sad those. They're not there when Paul wrote this. So just after mentioning, just after mentioning Eve's deception in verse 14, Paul gives this wonderful word of hope. But she, singular, will be saved through the childbirth, singular. Who is the she? And what is this one childbirth? Well, you probably know the answer. Immediately after the fall, God promises Eve that through her, the world will be saved. She is not ultimately responsible for the fall. Adam is. And let's be honest, men are still responsible for most of the evil in our world. But she was, she was the means, the entry point of evil into our world. But, says Paul, she shall be saved. Her story, even her daughter's, is not ruin and shame and death because God in Genesis 3.15 promises Eve that a son of her own body will stomp out the serpent. Ladies, can you imagine, especially this morning, men too, but ladies, sisters especially, can you imagine for a moment how Eve must have felt after the fall? She has this glorious calling as helper. Again, remember, this isn't the help, but as her husband's great ally in life. Her creation was celebrated by Adam. He was enamored with her. At just the right time, God had provided not just a helper, but someone who is one with him in every way. It all feels so obvious now, but if you can go back to that first moment, you can begin to imagine the glory and the joy that must have filled the whole relationship they had together. But then, through this satanic deception, she ruined her whole calling. She must have been beyond dejected, beside herself with grief. The horror of what she has done descends on her. She was announced with trumpets, here is the helper, here is bone of my bone. And then she went and ruined it terribly. Can you even begin to imagine her anguish as she went from perfection and glory and being the praise and wonder of her husband to this? Maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you feel terrible that you've done some of this in your own life as well. Well, you probably know what happens next. 
God comes to her and tells her um, her judgment. And she tells him, God, I was fooled. I, I got turned around by the serpent. And it's true. Unlike Adam, she was really deceived. But nevertheless, as Paul says, she became a transgressor. She didn't just get fooled. She did really sin. She participated with a serpent in corrupting her husband. Her grief must have been profound, overwhelming. Shame, as it always does, followed quickly after sin. So quickly, in fact, so quickly, in fact, that she had already started to cover her body, even when she was around her husband. At that time, God judges her at the center of her being. Of all the things that make her most different, most unique, her ability to have children is top of the list. This doesn't mean that having children is all that matters for a woman, but it is unique to a woman. It is the key difference between men and women. And remember, Eve's very name is tied to her being, quote, the mother of all the living. So there, right there, at that sensitive, intimate, central part in her being, God lays down his judgment. God says, I will surely, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, these are the words, these are the circumstances ringing in Paul's ears as he writes. And yet Paul knows that right before, right before God lays that judgment on Eve, God gave to her and Adam a hope. In Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Evangelion, that is the first giving of the gospel, God says, I will put war, I'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, isn't that interesting? I will put war, God says, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Not the man's offspring, but the woman's offspring. What a remarkable thing to say. There are several explanations, but one big clue and very helpful in our context today is to remember that Jesus was born of a woman but not of what? Of a man. Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman, free from the pollution of Adam's inherited guilt. In any case, God gives her the promise, he shall bruise your head, that's the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the woman Eve will have the last laugh. She will win. She will get her vengeance. Evil came into our world through her, but so will salvation. So do you see Paul's point? Despite her terrible fall, verse 15, he says, yet hold on, she, that is Eve, will be saved through a childbirth. Remember the story. Paul then speaks to all women now and then, and he adds these words, if they, that is her followers, her sisters, do likewise if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, Eve's daughters will win with her and be saved with her as they persevere also in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. As women embrace the second Adam by faith and manifest a true faith in holiness, they will win with Eve and share in her glorious 
future. Do you see then? Do you see? This is not a story to shame women. It's a story of victory for mankind through Christ. In an irony too deep for words, I can't express it. In an irony too deep for words, God will defeat the serpent through the very weapon the Satan, Satan used to corrupt Adam. And so from Eve's body, from Eve's body comes the whole church. How right we are to call the church a her. We always call the church a she. For despite all the efforts of Satan, violent efforts at that, he cannot wipe out the woman's seed, the church, the elect. God preserves her. Until finally, in the fullness of time, the Virgin Mary, this teenage girl, will, in a moment of profound humility, bring about the one thing the serpent desperately feared. A second, a second firstborn man comes into the world in Bethlehem. He will be the second Adam. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. She is the instrument of Satan's destruction. And Satan must now watch as the very instrument he used to bring sin into the world is reversed on him and used to bring endless salvation and glory to millions. God, you see, always sided with Eve, always loved her, always planned to use her. The plan was just far greater, far better than she could have ever imagined. What can we say to these things? To the mystery of God's will, to make Adam the firstborn, and then, in the fullness of time, to bring forth another firstborn. For Jesus is descendant of the Spirit and the Virgin Mary alone, a new creature, a firstborn over a new creation. This is all very wise, and it is all very deep. Paul writes, For God consigned all the disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul adds, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Scholars have long admitted that we live our lives out of stories. We live our lives out of stories Not made-up stories, mind you, true stories, or what we believe about ourselves, our world, and others. They call these stories uh, meta-narratives or big stories or sometimes worldviews. The modern Western worldview we're all living in today is essentially an extension of Darwinism. Darwinism says that the heart of all life is violence, the survival of the strong, pure struggle. And are you surprised that our culture talks constantly of power, black power, woman's power, my power? This is all there ever was 
all there ever is, all there ever will be in Darwinism. And so in such a story, from such a worldview, can you see that men and women must always be in this worldview in competition? It is us against them. It is a fight for power, control, and resources. Since this fight for power is all there ever was, is, or ever shall be, the fight by definition must go on forever and ever. Amen in their mind. When Darwinism is applied to marriage, everything begins at 50-50. But in reality, we all know the truth. 50-50 fails the very first time there's a really good disagreement. In reality then, and this is so Darwin, in secular marriage, the dominant spouse wins. We've all seen it. Since God is not there to declare a leader, the two go at it until someone emerges from the ooze as the dominant species. Usually one spouse has the personality, the resolve, and strength to set the direction of the marriage. And people, most people, know which one is really in control, which one is really the dominant organism. I hope in this brief study that you've seen how the Bible utterly contradicts this worldview and places us inside a different story, inside a grand narrative of God's love and mission to the world. God says that at the heart of everything, the world's story, if you will, is not violence, but divine love and mission. Men and women equally share in that divine love and in God's mission, but they perform different roles in different areas of life, like different actors in a great story. So then our goal, brothers and sisters, is no longer, no longer survival of the fittest, but rather being conformed to God's character. Such men will be loving servant leaders. Such women will want to become the helper their husband never even realized he so desperately needed. And together, they, man and wife, will pursue their mission until, praise be to God, the work of life is done. And then, caught up together into God, they will live forever, immortal man, and immortal woman sitting on thrones and wondering how they could have ever doubted his love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is a small thing that you've asked us to do, to submit to one another in love in our various relationships. It is a small thing when we think about the ages of glory and enthronement that await us in eternity when we think about what we already are and what we already have in Christ, it is a small thing that you call us to these roles. And yet these roles are glorious. Help the men and women of this church to see how glorious is the story in which they live and how glorious is their role in it, male and female, according to your purpose and plan. Let them not be conformed to the spirit of this world to think of life and only in terms of power and control, but rather to be transformed by the understanding of your word. Guard and protect us as a church from all the false teaching around us and help us to enjoy, love, and embrace the calling that you've given to each one. This we pray and ask for, your protection in Jesus' name.